House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Today joining me as co-host, we've got Mr. Mike Brown. Bonjour. Yeah, bonjourney. Yes, exactly. It's so, one of those things. Mr. Brown, boy, it's been a while again. You keep disappearing. Are you going? You're in hiding. Well, I got things to do, Al. You know, I'm just <laughs> like your nails. Actually, no. Every time I I jump into the Facebook group to offer my services, somebody else has already taken all the shows. So, or at least the ones I I want to be on. Well, I wonder what's going on. I don't know. I think you have. Uh, a really good uh, group of co-hosts now, so yeah, you know they, they it comes and goes, right? There's some yeah. certainly some interesting people, but it's uh, no, it's all good. And you're going to be doing CrimeCon. What other events are you going? Oh gosh, um, CrimeCon for sure. We're going to be there uh, from uh, April 29th to May 1st in Vegas uh, with our own table on Podcast Row with the other true crime podcasters. So that's going to be quite fun it has been in past uh, years i've been to nashville and uh new orleans before but uh i've been to vegas quite a few times already so i'm really looking forward to returning and having some fun there my co-host new co-host matthew is going to be with me so it'll be a good time yeah yeah maybe you'll become a regular you'll be like taking celine dion's place <laughs> Have my own Vegas show? Have your own Vegas show? You never know. She's, well, she she's out sick. Yeah, she's yeah. out cancel. So there you go. There's an opening. Well, I don't think anybody wants to see me uh, or hear me sing any of her music. I just wear the same outfit and put on a hat. They won't know. <laughs> do? Well, well, you know, that's you, you never know. You never know. You don't know. Well, I do know. Nobody wants to see that. I'm, I'm fairly certain. Put on a CD and pretend. <laughs> lip just lip sync like a drag queen yeah see there you go we're getting you we're getting you all set here right oh. <laughs> okay now today we were talking to someone in canada on the east side in the toronto area and uh, he's a returning guest this time he's got a new book out called the beetle bandit so mr nate henley thank you for being on the show well, thanks for having me back always a pleasure First of all, what what got you into this story itself? Like how how did it, how did it fall into your hands? Uh, well, this is a good example of um, networking in action. Uh, I was doing a presentation in a library about a totally different book, and this guy uh, named Paul Truster approaches me, tells me he's a lawyer, that he's got a really good story for me, um, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, whatever, because as I'm sure you know, you know, as a busy true crime writers, uh, we get approached all the time by people with the greatest story ever. And it often turns out not to be or they turn out to be a kook. So I met with Paul. He um, gave me his spiel. He had grown up in this neighborhood in North York, a suburb. Uh, it's now part of Toronto, but it was initially sort of its own thing. And uh, he told me this story I'd never heard of about this, this bizarre bank robber. Of the bank in 1964 in it was dubbed the Beetle Bandit, and he um, sort of casu almost casually mentioned that he'd been researching this for years, 
and had a treasure trove of documents, police documents. Uh, he had the entire court transcripts, like a thousand pages. And, you know, this is just like, you know, as a crime writer, this is just catnip. These are all public documents. You can quote from them. So the more I delved into it, the more it sounded like a fascinating topic. And uh, so I approached Gunder Press, they really loved it, and a book was born out of that experience. Um, so that's kind of the genesis of the whole thing. And to be perfectly honest, before Paul Truster approached me, I had never heard of this guy, Beetle Bandit, and I'd never heard of this particular crime. I hadn't heard of it either, and, and I do Canadian crime exclusively. And uh, when I saw your book, The Beetle Bandit, and, and you sent me a copy of it, and I, I'm, I've been through it, and I just like what? What the heck? How how did I not know about this really interesting story? In particular, the composite drawing. Oh yes, the notorious composite drawing. Um, I guess we can get to that in a sec. But what's what astonished me is I discovered there's no one else had written this guy. That there might have been little, you know, mentions in other books and stuff. But uh, I thought, oh yeah, okay, great topic. I'm sure there must be like slew of books about this guy discovered no there isn't i'm like okay so that's a nice opportunity i love doing um i love doing books about uh crime topics that aren't hugely well known yeah no i i think that's the that's a great way to do it we've got enough ted bundy um <laughs> yeah but you know um i hadn't heard of it either and i even looked through and it's hard to find any information Really, there's not like a most of it's uh, got your name attached to it when you go online. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a very odd story because it was hugely covered in the media at the time. Like in addition to Paul's research, I dug dug up a ton of old newspaper accounts about this crime, front page news. You know, all the it happened in Toronto, so that's media capital. Front page news and all the local papers was on. You know. TV, you know, big, you know, baits about this. And then it just sort of disappeared into this black hole. And I found that totally weird, but uh, it sort of gave me great motivation. Uh, sort of held this story that almost no one has ever heard of. What do you think it was that made it disappear? And uh, uh, because it is such an interesting and compelling thing, but just hmm. poof, gone away for all these years. Yeah, to tell you the truth, Mike, I really don't know in that in Canada, we seem to have this weird thing um, of forgetting our own historic past. But if you want to drill down, also forgetting our own criminal historic path, past, uh, to jump ahead a bit, the Matthew Carey Smith Beetle Bandit was one of the last people in Canada sentenced to hang. And I mentioned that to people and they look at me and they go, oh, I didn't know Canada had capital punishment. Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, yeah, we did. From the time of Confederation, 1867, right up to 1962, they hanged over 700 people in Canada. That it used to be if you were convicted of murder, you were almost automatically put to death. And uh, that's another fact that has sort of disappeared into the black hole, you know, that Canada had capital punishment. Um and I don't honestly know, because the last book I did, The Boy and the Bicycle, which was about this uh, wrongful murder conviction in Toronto in 1956 mm -hmm. involving a 14-year-old, no one had ever heard of that one either. 
Um, and again, big story at the time, disappeared. So I think it's maybe part of this overall Canadian amnesia that a lot of true crime tends to be dominated by American stories, you know, or British, you know, Jack Ripper, of course, you know, Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, um, John Wayne Gacy, all these stories tend to get a bit more play. And um, we forget we have our own bizarre and sometimes very sad horror stories back here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't get um, the media coverage as well. It, it, like it isn't right. Like we right. haven't got all the, you know, the Nancy Graces and stuff up here doing all these shows and, and good point. And, yeah. you know, beating it to death. You know, they would talk about this 24 seven for, you know, weeks and follow the mm-hmm. trial on CNN. And we don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> There's something cultural, I think, about Canada, too, in the way we tell stories and the stories that are important to us. And uh, for some reason, it, it feels like there's kind of a shame sometimes around our dark past, which makes my show quite easy to write and research because uh, there's a lot of a lot of things that I can talk about that people just don't mention anymore. Yeah, that's true. Like, in addition to... Um the fact that Canada used to have the death penalty. There's all these other topics, you know, either crimes or um, like the fact that I discovered through the writing of my this book that there were these bizarre um, regulations in Canada back in the 50s that made it quite easy to acquire uh, semi-automatic um, rifles, which nowadays, of course, big controversy in Canada, semi-automatic military-style rifles. Back in the 60s, um, Beetleman had just walked into a gun store on the street and purchased this using false, gave a false name and, um, you know, just strolled out this uh, rifle, FN rifle that um, the Canadian Armed Forces used a version of it. And that's another little sort of thing that a lot of people nowadays, when I mention that, they're like astonished. Oh, well, I didn't think we sell guns in Canada. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's certainly... It's funny because Canadians complain all the time about other countries not understanding Canada and having myths about Canada. But Canadians are pretty bad, too, about not understanding their own history or accepting these weird myths, you know, that we were, you know, this peaceful society and never had any guns and no one ever was hanged. And it's just not true. Yeah, I recently told the FLQ story on my podcast and, oh, and people were shocked. Like there was terrorism and bombings in Canada. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like there was a Ku Klux Klan in Canada that was active in the twenties. People are often astonished to hear that. Let's talk a little bit about the story. What's the, what's the sure. basic premise of the story so that people know sure. what happened. Okay, well, I will um, skip, uh, cut to the chase, then give a tiny bit of background so I won't, you know, bore you completely. July 24th, 1964, um, this young man, Matthew Carey Smith, and he's an intelligent guy, but deeply troubled to, you know, use a generic expression, served in the Canadian Navy, but um, in the early 60s, he just starts robbing banks. And he has this idea that he's going to fund a one-man revolution against the government. It's a little hazy what he wants to do, but it's just like he hates the government. So 1964, he drives up to um, Bathurst Manor, uh, which is a neighborhood in Northwood, near Toronto, puts on a disguise, which is like a Halloween mask of President, French President Charles de Gaulle, and a beetle wig. You know, this is summer 64. Beetles are just everywhere. 
dominating the charts. They're going to play in Toronto in the fall. It's just like everywhere. So puts on the Speedle wig, goes to this bank, um, a Canadian Imperial uh, Bank of Commerce, takes a rifle out of a guitar case, and um, it's a Fabrique National uh, rifle, which is a military-grade semi-automatic. Fires around and gets everyone, you know, cows everyone and uh, gets them to give him all this money. And at first it looks like, okay, he's, this is like the third robbery he's done. Looks like he's going to get away with that. So he's leaving the bank and there's a bank patron there named Jack Blank. Mr. Blank is a veteran of both the Canadian Army and Israeli Army. And he's got, you know, military background, knows guns, and he's a bit of a hothead. At the time, there's another, another one of these little historical quirks. Banks in Canada stocked pistols, and the clerks were expected to use them in case of robbery. <laughs> so Jack Blank knows this. One of the accountants from the bank, Carmen Lamp, goes into the bank, grabs a 38 caliber and fills it with Jack Blank wrestles it out of his hands. There's some debate about, um, you know, uh, Jack Blank's wife claimed that the accountant gave it to him. Everyone else says, no, Jack Blank grabbed it. Jack Blank runs after the Beetle Bandit, starts shooting at him, and the Beetle Bandit returns fire using a forty-five caliber pistol at first. And Jack Blank is, you know, pegging him. There's pegging, you know, shots at him. And this is on this quiet suburban street, you know, in Toronto. These things don't happen too often. Jack Blank, unfortunately... Uh, the revolver he was using only had four cartridges in it because the accountant, Carmen Lamb, had underloaded it because he was afraid it might drop on the floor and the hammer would hit a live round and go off. Now, before you say that sounds like paranoia, um, someone had actually been killed in a Toronto bank from exactly this accident, that a pistol had fallen to the floor and had discharged so the gun only has four rounds. Jack doesn't know this. He shoots four shots. Beetle Bandit then picks up his rifle and kills him. Fires twice, hits him in the heart, hits him in the head. And so Jack Blank is dead. Beetle Bandit can't get his getaway car started. So he just starts wandering up the street. Police car suddenly shows up. Um, Beetle Bandit turns, shoots up the police car, almost kills the officer. Meanwhile, a helpful civilian has commandeered a vehicle comes up the street. I don't know what he was thinking of doing, maybe chasing the Beetle Bandit. Beetle Bandit sees this car coming. The guy in the car very wisely jumps out because he realizes this maniac with a gun who just shot a police car is looking at him. Beetle Bandit strolls to this vehicle, which the guy didn't bother taking the keys out of the ignition, throws his rifle in, throws his gun in, drives off, gets away with it. So for um, a period of almost six months, uh, the Beetle Bandit is at large, and he acquires this nickname from the press because he's wearing a Beetle wig. So, of course, a Beetle Bandit, you know, he's all over the news. And Jack Blank is hailed as a hero um, by his community and by a lot of newspapers saying, you know, this guy's a warrior, he stood up. Starts a whole process of this debate, you know, should he have intervened? Uh, similar to the, you know, nowadays there's this debate in the U.S. about uh, armed vigilantes. Mm-hmm. You know, should they get involved in situations? So this happened in 1964 Canada. Here's an armed vigilante, tries to stop a bank robber, gets killed. Cops try to trace the rifle. They can't because the rifle wasn't registered. 
all these complicated things. And I'll just give a very quick thumbnail. Uh, January 1965, the Beetle Bandit is captured while driving at Young Street, which is the main thoroughfare in Toronto. He's with a companion, um, Matthew Amot, Amyot, sorry, Matthew Amyot. He's taken to a police station, pistol falls out of his um, belt, and he just starts babbling and confessing. Oh, yeah, I robbed this bank and killed this guy. And he starts giving this whole spiel about his... Uh, revolution and he's going to you know, overthrow the Canadian government and um, he admires you know communists uh, he throws some good words for Nazis but he doesn't believe their ideology he just likes the fact that they do violent things um, goes to trial and it comes out that you know he had been diagnosed as schizophrenic his mother was schizophrenic and it so it became this whole complicated thing it was more than just a little bank robbery where a guy got killed it becomes an issue about gun control because there's all these issues newspapers saying you know how come they can't trace this weapon this is insane insanity defense because he pleads insane um is he going to get off and uh, the death penalty eventually he's found guilty and sentenced to hang so uh 1965 the beetle bandit is sentenced to hang and that commences a big it, uh, campaign to try to save his life. Um, mm. There's a big effort to commute his sentence. Was well, that in the community that they wanted to save his life? Like there was a, a people that just didn't want him. To um, it was sort of in in Canada at large, and the last hanging in Canada had been in 1962. Mm. So there had been an anti-death penalty movement growing for quite some time. Beetle Bandit's father, who's also named Matt Smith. Um, campaigns to save his son's life. Like he acknowledges his son committed these crimes, but he said, my boy is mentally ill. He shouldn't be hanged. He gets a sympathetic ear from Scott Young, who's a journalist at the Globe and Mail and father of Neil Young, future rock star. Scott Young is a big journalist at the time. And he has a lot of articles about, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't hang this guy. He's obviously mentally ill. There's editorials across the whole country, actually. I collected a bunch of Calgary, Vancouver, saying, um, you know, it's wrong to hang this guy. He's clearly mentally ill. And number two, as I said, there had been a lot of um, pressure to stop um, hangings in general at the time. So long and short of it, January 1960, sorry, this Late 1965, uh, the Canadian federal government announces that Beetle Bandit and two other guys who have been sentenced to death will not hang. Their sentences are commuted to life in jail. And this marked sort of, this was like the climax. This was after this, it was pretty obvious government was not going to let anyone else hang. So even though the law wasn't changed until 1976, there was a period of a few years where it was pretty obvious no one else in Canada was going. Be, um, hanged on the gallows, even if they were sentenced to death. Right, right. What can you tell us about his family? Like, did he have a wife or children or anything going on at the time? Yes. Um, well, he had this bizarre background. He was born in uh, out west. His father uh, was Matthew Bartley Smith. His mother was Helen Isabel Crichton. Um, he had a sister, Leanne. He, you know, loving father, loving parents, but his mother developed mental, uh, mental problems very early on. 
family split up. The father got custody of the kids. And the father had noted his son's eccentricities very early on. Like he noted that um, uh, Matthew, Matt Smith was just, he seemed sort of in his own little world. He was, uh, you know, just doing weird things. He expressed this uh, huge admiration for bank robbers and uh, wasn't really, you know, his life was just sort of turmoil. He's a very smart kid, but drops out of school, private school, his dad had put him into, um, joins the Navy and does okay for a while, but then asked to be released. He's at loose ends. He just starts 1960. He just starts robbing banks and um, stealing cars, robbing banks, no real purpose and 1961 he's cat he's caught doing a car chase through toronto and he's diagnosed uh as part of his sentence he's taken to a clinic they diagnose him as schizophrenic and his mother had also been diagnosed as schizophrenic um so he would sort of go from these weird kind of bizarre behavior to relatively normal like he went out west got a job with inco which is international nickel nickel uh, he's makes, made a few friends and he meets this, uh, wife while well, he's out West. Um, Eileen Charity Amyot, who is Métis. That means she's half indigenous, half French. She agrees to come with him to Toronto and he buys a house. He has these collection of people living with him, uh, including, you know, his mother-in-law wife. Uh, she moves her little daughter in at one point. Um, her brother is living there, a couple of buddies, and he's got guns everywhere. He's, he buys all these guns. He's into revolution. So his wife remained loyal to him throughout all of this and um, uh, claimed that he was this you know, great husband, <laughs> common-law husband, great guy, uh, and was a terrific father to... She had a daughter from a previous marriage. And she claimed he was a great stepdad and all this sort of thing. So he did manage to have some relationships and um, uh, a loyal partner um, for a long time. He fathered a child right before he went to jail. So I actually got a chance to speak to his son, Beetle Bandit's son, who's named Kerry Jr. And um, so that was an interesting experience. In some ways, he led a, he managed to lead a normal life in some ways. It was the weirdest thing because... Um, as one of the shrinks that the trial testified, being schizophrenic doesn't mean you're psychotic all the time. There's periods of lucidity and Beetle Bandit could be fairly, I won't quite say rational, but he, you know, he had enough sense to be able to buy a house and look after people, give his money out and stuff and work hard. Worked a machine as a machinist in a rubber plant. Uh, Love Canada Limited, I think. Hmm. What what was his point um, behind revolution? Like, what is it that he wanted to change? What was his um, revolution? Well, here's the here's the bizarre part is that he really didn't have an ideology that he wanted to basically overthrow the Canadian government, but was always very vague on what he would replace it with. And he didn't want to make himself dictator. He sort of said, well, you know, we'll have a revolution and I'll become the chief of police. <laughs> or I'll head the army up. He basically would just rant and rave about how much he hated the government. And as far as can be discerned, he didn't have any specific ideology. I mean, I've read um, 
reports from the police where he would, you know, he's ranting and raving in the police station and they would take down every word. And nothing really logical comes out. It's just sort of, I hate the government. He did say they don't listen to young people, which is probably a legitimate point in 1964. Um, beyond that, like, it's just this weird mishmash of nonsensical raving. He had this idea that he would herald a revolution by, you know, his, his acts of gallantry. He had this whole machismo warrior kind of thing going on, too. Um, and it was debatable how serious he was about all this. Like, I might have just been this weird fantasy kind of thing coming out. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't even label him on any political spectrum. Maybe just nihilist, for lack of a better word. Mm. Like, just, I want to just overthrow everything. <laughs> he just wants it all to come down. We'll f- figure out what, what to do yeah. afterwards, you know. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it, it, interesting too, I guess uh, that uh, uh, Jacques Blank fellow, his his son. I saw he had a blog or something. Did you um, talk? Yes, yeah. I I interviewed his son Stanley. Um, rather obviously, has been just affected for decades by this. You know, Stanley was 14 years old when his father was murdered, and it just shattered him. I mean, as understandable and it was very intense uh interviewing him you know because he's still upset about this decades later and um just talked about the impact on his family on his, his mom um as typical of a lot of families in 1964 his dad was the chief breadwinner and he did get um there was a banking association that gave the family some money after the father was killed, but it wasn't a huge amount. And it was this, this sort of this incredibly sad story. He had he gave me this incredibly sad story. The family lived near the bank that was robbed. So his and the family that Friday, they were going to the bank to get money because they're supposed to go on holiday and they were gonna the stand, sorry. Stanley's parents, Jack, and his mother, Sally, were going to open up a joint bank account for a holiday they're going to take, like, I think it was, like, on Sunday or Monday. They go to the bank, and Stanley can hear these gunshots from his house or his apartment. And he said to me, he's just hoping to God that his father isn't involved in this because he knows his dad. He knows his dad is a military guy who thinks he's a warrior. And then Stanley's waiting and waiting and waiting. There's a knock on the door. And uh, this voice says, hi, is that Stanley? And he says, yeah. And then said, um, we've got your mother here. She's going to come up and talk to you. And he says it was two homicide detectives. Mm-hmm. And you can just like, oh, oh my. He told me that. It's just like, man, yeah. this must have just been the most devastating thing imaginable. And then, of course, there's this debate after. Was his father a hero? Or was this really stupid to go after the heavily armed bank robber with a 38 caliber pistol? Hmm. Yeah, it must have been a really, especially in the early 60s like that, and he was only 14 or something, you said. Um, yeah, must have been a terrible time for him. 
you know. Absolutely, absolutely. It is, we're actually so used to the parents are going to go away. That's interesting. How much research do you have, do you do besides the direct information you're getting about the Beetle Bandit himself and a few others and stuff like uh, like with the well, with the guns behind the tillers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Sure, sure. There were two main things I did. Is like I said, Paul Truster provided me with court transcript police memos, court documents, all that good stuff. So I did two things. I did the obvious, which is check out all the media articles from that era. Um, so I got a good collection of those. Paul also had a few newspaper articles. But I also managed to interview um, a number of people directly involved in the case. I interviewed the Beetle Bandit's son, Kerry Jr. I interviewed uh, Jack Blank's son, Stanley. I interviewed the, the accountant, Carmen Lamb, the guy who had the revolver, um, who, by the way, I forgot to mention, he also, Carmen Lamb, went into the bank, got a second pistol, and shot out, shot a few rounds himself at the Beetle Bandit. I talked to him. I talked to two guys who were at the shooting, you know, who described to me in you know, blow by blow, okay, they see this guy running around, and next thing they know, there's a gunfight, and... Jack Blank gets shot in the head. So I supplemented with some, um, I was very pleased with being able to reach these people because the crime had taken place. It was his, it was a historic crime, but it wasn't so far back that all the witnesses and people involved were dead. So in 1964, there were still enough people alive who um, talked to me directly. And that was, I felt pretty significant because I felt, okay, I, People who were actually there in the bank when the Beetle Bandit showed up in his bizarro outfit and started shooting his rifle around, yelling at people and stuff. When you do something like this and you go through it and you, and you finish the book and someone picks it up and reads it, is there, is, is there something you hope that they get out of it besides the, the actual story itself? Yeah, um, I hope they get out of it. Well, a couple things. I hope they get out of it that. One of the reasons I wrote this was that it triggered bad choice of words. It fueled um, major debate about, as I said, gun control, insanity defenses, death penalty. So it was the impetus for a lot of policy discussion, high-level debate in the Canadian government. The second thing I hope to get out of it is just the very human story of a tragedy of two families, Matthew Carey Smith's family, because they had to deal with the of you know him being this killer, and the uh, Jack Blanks family, who you know were victimized um, by Smith. So I was I tried to humanize it like that as much as I could, and keep in mind that these are flesh and blood people, and show you know how this impacted people, you know on a hum- on a day to day level, um, and impacted just their entire lives basically. How does something like this affect you? Like when you write a book like this and when you're through it and it's published now, um, do you look back and do you, do you, do you notice any change in yourself? Um, that's a very good question. The immediate thing that comes to mind and I would, it's a very difficult balancing act between being compassionate and being objective because I felt I did do, I did approach this in a compassionate way, you know, interviewing the survivors. But on the other hand, 
you do have to be fairly objective. So obviously I have great sympathy. Big part of me is like, okay, this is my latest book. This is the story. Here it is. And, and, you know, it's one of several books I've written. Here are some of the other ones. That's not, you know, you obviously you can't be callous because I think that's a big mistake for any true crime writer, but you do have to, you can't be so emotionally invested that every time I do a reading, I start weeping or something. <laughs> and well, I, I've seen things like that happen. So, um, so it doesn't, I can't really say it changed me hugely except on sort of certain, some technical things, like in terms of, um, technical knowledge of how to do investigations in the future, or find suss out certain documents and stuff. Um, I've been journalist since the early nineties. You do kind of get used to it. And I, again, I'm trying really hard not to sound old, but you do kind of, it's part of the job. You have to get used to it, tell the story and, um, hope that you tell it in as honest and compassionate form as possible. I, I'd imagine when you go through a story like this, I, for myself anyway, I find this, uh, there's always a couple of things that happen that are kind of um, not expected in a way a surprise or something that you learn that you weren't sort of, you didn't think it would, you, you weren't thinking about it. It just comes out of the blue. Was there anything about this case that did that for you? Yes, there was. Um, a couple things, like a couple technical points. Just, uh, I had no idea that Canadian banks used to stock revolvers. Yeah. yeah. Expected staff to use them. And then it, what was really bizarre is that Paul also pointed out that this wasn't the first time something like this happened. There was another case in the 50s where a guy was robbing a bank and the manager grabbed a pistol and managed to shoot one of his own staff and killed oh, them. Oh. So like this, this wasn't the first time a bizarre thing like this had happened. Uh, the second thing was some of the technical details. Um, I discovered in the 1950s, uh, Canada had a um, firearms registration, you know, which sounds okay. Yeah. Good Canadian, but they had this bizarre rule that um, all firearms had to be registered with the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But the law specifically defined a firearm, be a pistol, revolver, um, or a machine gun. And so bolt action rifles, um, shotguns, and semi-automatic rifles did not have to be registered. There's this bizarre loophole. And I had no idea that this existed. And I had no idea that this was a hugely controversial issue at the time, because a lot of, there's a tendency of a people tend to think a lot of issues are modern things like we think oh gun control that's a uh, contemporary concern vigilanteism that's something we worry about now but a lot of these stuff had happened like decades before there were all these outraged newspaper articles you know tighten our gun laws and mm. uh you know we should have a better registry and all these sort of things and i was i have to admit even as a crime writer i had no idea that there was this level of debate um or intensity, you know, years and years ago. Uh, so that was greatly surprising. So the, probably those two technical things, um, and the biggest overall things, just I have to reiterate, I did not know about this case before <laughs> Paul Truster approached me, which any true crime writers listening, uh, 
which is why it's a good idea to keep those lines of communication open. You never know when someone's <laughs> going to give you a good tip or a good lead on a story. I've had a number of them over the years. Just, you know, someone will reach out to me with something and just all of a sudden I'm down a rabbit hole that I didn't <laughs> know existed. And, and it's like, exactly. how on earth did I not know about this? But, you know. That's that's true. That's I can absolutely relate absolutely relate to that, Mike. And as um as you probably are fully aware, you gotta sort of have a filter to sift through some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I've had other, you know, people give me tips about stuff that is you know, not exactly earth shattering news. Yeah. Um and <laughs> a guy who wanted to expose corruption on some small town Ontario city council or something, and kinda of had to politely tell him that Probably not, you know, something that most readers would be terribly interested in. They paid five thousand dollars for a water cooler in the town hall. <laughs> yeah, <that's>, uh, <laughs> yeah, we we didn't even get that far. I was just like, okay, uh, sure, pal. Yeah, well, okay. My grandpa is yeah. Jack the Ripper. Or, oh, oh, everybody's you know, grandpa yeah. is Jack the Ripper or H. H. Holmes. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> so, right. Zodiac. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. I didn't. You did. Were women allowed to open a bank account in the 60s in Canada? Oh, geez. Because uh, in America, they weren't. It was not until yeah. they had to have a husband's signature starting in 64. And then in 74, they said, okay, we'll let you have your own bank account. Oh, my goodness. I know. I was I'm, just shocked. You know? I'm not 100% sure. Um, I would suspect the laws were similar and of course, it's different if you're a single woman, well, of course, versus a married oh, woman. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I'm gonna have to plead ignorance. I don't know um, what the situation was. I do know the Beatle Bandit got his his girlfriend to open a bank account because he was sort of laundering bank proceeds, uh, proceeds from his bank heists. Um, he got his girlfriend and some of his buddies to open bank accounts, and he would put money in. But I don't know the exact eats. Um, yeah, if she had to get his signature or anything. I think that's the most interesting thing about when you, do, you know, especially researching older stories like that, older crimes, and finding out a lot of the information. And and it's true, like you said, I, every time I go through, even the recent one from the twenties that I was writing about, it, it seems like when you go through the newspapers, they're arguing the same things that we hear now. Yeah. It's just it's just different different names and uh, different places, but it's the same arguments, you know, like you said about guns or militia or you know uh, politics of some sort or some sort of yeah you know yeah it's um, it's the same sort of battles, and um, I'm always I, fascinated by it. I do have a, a little bit of a theory about that. It's one reason why true crime is such a popular genre is because when you do historic true crime, you know, everybody wants to read about, you know, there's been a million books on Jack Ripper, right? Mm -hmm. But very, very few people would want to read a book about um, 1880s uh, British House of Commons debate about wheat imports or something. (laughs) Unless they need a nap. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which is, I mean, I'm sure it was a big issue at the time, or like there's a lot of when you do do these newspaper research um, about old crimes, they'll have a big headline about something like, you know, uh, inquiry at, um, you know, motor vehicle licensing firm reveals corruption. Or, 
And, you know, big issue at the time, big issue for a few people. But nowadays, most people would yawn and go, oh, whatever. So, but, you know, unfortunately, uh, we're still fascinated by certain murders or scams. You know, a lot of the stuff is with us since time of war. Yeah. No, it it just, the things actually stay the same in a way. It yeah. Just, yeah. We keep replaying it, you know. At the end of the day, um, how did it end up? So obviously the Beatle Bandit, uh, Smith, didn't get uh, put to death. Um, what ended up happening with this man? Well, a bit of a tragedy. He gets uh, commuted, which means his sentence is changed from a hanging to life in prison. And he's shipped off to Kingston Penitentiary, which um, any Canadian listener know. It's a fairly tough prison Canadian system. And he seems to settle in for a while. He's writing all these letters to his girlfriend, um, which, again, the uh, Paul Truster provided me with copies of some of these letters. And I got permission from the family to use them. Uh, and the letters are fascinating because, you know, quite a, half of them are just day-to-day stuff, like went to the commissary and got a coffee, blah, blah, blah. And then he'll sometimes go off in these weird tangents about just bizarre stuff about having a relative who was a weightlifter and could beat up anybody and all this sort of weird stuff. So he seems relatively upbeat. And then in the summer of 1966, uh, the Beatle commits suicide in jail. He slashes his wrists with a razor. Um, turns out that he was not put in the psychiatric wing of the prison because uh, the gov- prison governor thought he'd have more, um, uh, he'd enjoy himself more than not in their general population prisoners in general pop got you know razors to use to shave themselves psychiatric prisoners did not and uh, he used one of the blades to cut his wrists open and he died and he didn't leave any behind any kind of um suicide note give any real indication of why he did this um his son carrie jr had a theory that he might have just been overwhelmed with guilt uh, about killing Jack Blank, mm. because um, if newspaper accounts are to be believed, the Beatle Bandit did have a change of heart at the end of his life. That he regretted robbing banks, regretted committing murder, um, gave up the idea of revolution, and was very remorseful. Mm. Um, so, and to me, I I put that in the book, and I didn't say this is the definitive reason, but I said it's to me as good a reason as any, because sure. he didn't leave leave behind any real message of why he did this with the letters that you have of his mm-hmm. could you tell did you get any sort of sense of if he was actually remorseful or if he even thought about it or did he write about it did he um, then he in his letters he never the letters i have and keep in mind i don't necessarily have all of them he didn't really mention anything about the crime and he almost casually mentioned that um um, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, my lawyer's appealing my case to the Supreme Court. Maybe I'll get hanged. And then the next sentence would be something about, um, you know, getting new boot laces or oh, shoes or something. So he didn't really talk at all about um, the case in the letters I have. Uh, a lot of his letters were just simply talking about his family because he had kids at the time. He had uh, his girlfriend, um, Eileen, had her own daughter his marriage and their son, Carrie Jr. So he would talk, give advice about kids and say, you know, 
kids are well and blah, blah, blah. And he talked little trivia about what he was doing in prison. He was working in a wood shop, um, playing guitar. So the letters are like weirdly sort of, they're not, if you're looking for deep insights on this guy's personality, they definitely were not there. Um, although, like I said, occasionally he'd go off in these very odd tangents about strange things, um, which I suspect was a sign of his mental illness. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, if you read the letters, you would just, you wouldn't have, you'd probably have no idea that this guy was in hmm. It's really, you might think. Yeah, yeah. strange. Strange. Now, um, how do you like to have your readers get in touch with you? Do you do social media? Do you have a website? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a website, uh, and they're welcome to go to there. It's www.natehendley.com, N-A-T-E-H-E-N-D-L-E-Y.com. The website has information about all of my books, uh, about my background, about presentations I'm doing. Because I have been doing some presentations. Um, COVID hasn't been very kind with doing in-person presentations, but I'm doing a few online things. Uh, And it has my contact information on the site. So if you're interested in the book or in contacting me, go to my website, natehenley.com, check out my stuff, and my email and everything is there. Um, I'm also on, like, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and all that good stuff, and Instagram. Okay, moving up. TikTok next. Oh, boy. Yeah, no, I haven't done any TikToks. I think I'm a little beyond the generational <laughs> demographic that wants to see me dancing, you know, and well, you doing know, my thing. So, yeah, that's well, true. It's true. Well, um, well, we'll have that on the website, of course, so people can find you with one right. click and, and everything like that. How How was the COVID um, during your writing here? Did you sort of, you must have done a oh, lot of yeah. Yeah. Was it affect? Did it really affect Oh, it? Yes, actually. Uh, COVID had a massive impact on the book because uh, it made gathering photographs just brutally difficult because part of my contract is I had to gather up pictures for the book. And Paul Truster gave me a few photos uh, that we ended up using. But a lot of the pictures I wanted were from um, archives. And all of the archives in Toronto were closed because of COVID. So the only photos they would make available were stuff that they had digitized, like pictures from, you know, the newspapers in the sixties that were in digital format. Mm. And that's only like a tiny percentage of all their pictures. Mm -hmm. So it was just brutal, like trying to get these photos and find stuff. Um, So that's one reason in case anyone's wondering, I think there's a total of eight or nine pictures in the book. um, And, you know, Something like this, you might have typically have more like 20. But it's like, hit my best folks, and it was really brutal getting photographs. Uh, so that definitely had a huge impact. So I couldn't just go down to, uh, there's like the Toronto Archives, the Ontario Archives, uh, Library uh, Archives Canada, all these places you could typically normally time, normal times you could go in person, do a search, come up with some photos, la-di-da, it's great, but you couldn't do that. So everything had to be done online. And like I said, most of these archives have only digitized a tiny percentage of their pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm grateful for the ones I had. But uh, yeah, COVID definitely made things very tough. You, do you find that you get affected by things going on around you too? So like, um, you know, with the COVID and the stress and the lockdown and, and all the weird stuff you see on the, on the news? Uh, 
COVID didn't really affect me personally because I've been working at home for like 20 years. I've worked as a journalist, freelance journalist. So that didn't impact me. Um, closing the gyms, the swimming pools was hard because it took away a bit, a lot of my uh, exercise outlets. Uh, what was more hard to say, yeah, it's a good question because I was, the one thing is like, um, from Monday to Friday, I'm usually doing like freelance journalism, business, trade magazine stories, stories about bulldozers and GPS satellites on wheel loaders. And it kind of distracts you in a way. And it's good because it keeps you like, you got to just sort of cut out time for your book and just say, okay, uh, Saturday, I'm going to write for six hours and then spend a couple hours researching and blah, blah, blah. You can't be precious about it to say, well, only go to write when the muse strikes my brow <laughs> and the angels come down and kiss my forehead with inspiration. You can't do that. Like, cause I'm busy, you know, I got a deadline. I got to get this thing done. Um, so on a personal level, COVID definitely affected me and for researching photos, it affected me, but otherwise, you know, massive change. Mm, interesting. Well, yeah, another great conversation with another great author. Um, the book we're talking about is The Beetle Bandit, and our guest is the author, Nate Hentley. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, uh, Alan and Mike. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoy doing the show. And I'm going to give a plug to Mike's book because <laughs> I just read it, and gosh darn, it was darn good. It kept my interest. Oh, thanks, Nate. I appreciate that. I, I, I've been thinking the whole time here I want to have you on my show to talk about this book that you just wrote. So, Okay, well, yeah, yeah. I'm always happy to do interviews. And- to find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.